second reading this morning is from Acts chapter 10. I'm going to read uh, verses 9 through 23. Hear the word of God. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the man and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that you would be present with us this morning. We thank you for the privilege to gather here as your people, to gather around your word and around your table. We pray that you would be present in the proclamation of your word and in the sacrament this morning. And we pray that we might see you more clearly because of your presentation to us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so last week we uh, began uh, what is the longest story uh, in the Acts of the Apostles. It's the story of uh, Cornelius, the centurion, uh, who comes to faith in Christ. And so this is the second little chunk within that larger story. Uh, that story is going to run on for 66 verses. It'll take us a while to get through the whole thing, but I'm, I assume that you're largely familiar with the story of the centurion and his coming to faith. Now this morning we have Peter's vision and this giant sheet comes down out of heaven bearing all kinds of animals. Now we don't get a list of all of the animals that are in that sheet, but I'm guessing that that sheet was something like Noah's Ark that it contained every single animal on planet earth. We know for certain that some of the animals in that sheet were unclean. They were not kosher. Reptiles, for example. There were reptiles in the sheet, we're told, and there are no kosher reptiles. And then a voice from heaven says, Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. Eat an iguana. Eat a duck-billed platypus. Eat a guinea pig. And Peter 
Like a good Jew says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. We read a few verses, we read a few verses from Leviticus where God gives the laws regarding clean and unclean uh, animals, sheep and goats and uh, cows are clean, but camels and rabbits and rock badgers are unclean. Some of your favorite foods, including bacon and shrimp, don't make the list of clean foods that we find in the Old Testament. Now some people come to books like Leviticus with all of its obscure laws and they, I don't know, they sneer or they chuckle to themselves. They pat themselves on the back as, you know, modern people who have progressed beyond uh, primitive superstitions or they congratulate themselves as Christians uh, whose covenant with God is superior to the covenant that God made with the Jews. Let me just say that both of those attitudes toward the Old Testament law are wrong because Leviticus is the word of God. And if we ever place ourselves in the position of sneering at the word of God, then we commit the sin of placing ourselves on God's throne, of making ourselves God's judge, which is never a good idea. But it does leave us with the question of what sense do we make of the Old Testament law and what purpose does that law have in the life of Christians? The Protestant reformers were very interested in this question, the question of law and gospel, because they emphasized um, that we are saved by grace and not by keeping the law. The reformers were interested in the purpose of the Old Testament law uh, for Christians because they viewed the Roman Catholic Church as having made the mistake of replacing the freedom of the gospel with a whole bunch of uh, laws that needed to be kept. The two giants of the Reformation, Martin Luther and John Calvin, came to see three parts of the Old Testament law. So let me talk about those three parts of the law and then we're going to dig into uh, this luncheon that God offers to Peter. The Old Testament contains uh, the Ten Commandments, of course, but it also contains a total of 613 different laws. The Ten Commandments uh, are very familiar to us, but the law of Moses, the law that uh, he brought down from Mount Sinai, had a lot more than just those ten. The law includes rules about food and clothing and real estate and wages and marriages and burials. Lots and lots of rules about all kinds of stuff. So the reformers distinguished these three parts of the Old Testament law. The moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. The moral law is that part of the law which is true at all times and in all places. The moral law is universal. It applies to all people, even if they don't know that it applies to them. The moral law tells us that some things are simply right, being true to your marriage, honoring your parents, and that some things are simply wrong, murder or covetousness. According to the Reformers, the moral law in the Old Testament remains in force for Christians today. And that's because the moral law is universally true. The Ten Commandments, which are part of the moral law, continue to apply to us today. 
Now, after the moral law, which applies to everyone, we have the civil law, which applies to the citizens of a specific country or commonwealth. Every nation, of course, has its own civil law. Where we sit uh, here this morning in Lower Moreland Township, we are regulated by federal laws and state laws. There are county and township ordinances. And these rules regulate everything from how high the grass can be in your yard, which I know because I got a letter from my township about that, uh, how fast you can drive on the interstate highways, uh, how much you pay in taxes. All of those things are part of the civil law. Part of the law that was received at Mount Sinai was civil. It was law intended for the new nation of Israel. The Israelites had never before ruled themselves. They had never had their own government. And now God gives them a civil law because they're about to enter into the promised land and start their own country. The reformers concluded that the civil law is largely a matter of human wisdom and prudence and that each nation must formulate its own civil law subject to the universal moral law. Now, there are times in some places where the civil law and the moral law overlap, where there are times when Governments legislate matters that are covered by the universal moral law. For example, the moral law tells us that it's wrong to kill an an innocent human being. And we have laws here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania which prohibit murder. There are times when civil law and moral law overlap. But what happens when civil law says one thing and the moral law says something else? What happens when the civil law permits something that the moral law forbids or when the civil law prohibits something that the moral law requires? When there's a conflict between the civil law and the universal moral law, we as Christians must ignore the civil law and continue to abide by the moral law even if that means suffering the judgment of the civil law. Because God will judge us by the moral law, not by the civil law. In Matthew chapter 10, we read about Jesus sending out his disciples uh, to preach. This is before his crucifixion. It was a kind of trial run. It was a kind of training for the disciples. Jesus sends them out two by two, and he warns them, uh, that with their preaching they will receive persecution. And he says to them, uh, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Okay, So we Christians are called to respect and to obey civil authority. But if any government tells us to do what the moral law forbids, or if any civil government prohibits us from doing what the moral law commands, then we must obey the moral law and ignore the civil law. According to the reformers, the portions of the Old Testament law that regulate civil matters are not binding on Christians, though a nation may develop uh, its own set of laws uh, that, you know, incorporates some of the stuff that was given to ancient Israel. The civil law always is subject to the higher moral law. And finally, there are the ceremonial laws which regulate the worship of God. 
these ceremonial laws apply only to the worshiping community of the people of God? They don't apply to other people. Among the laws that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai are rules about how the furniture in the temple are to be constructed and how the sacrifices are to be conducted. There are rules about days of feasting and days of fasting. There are rules about the clothes that the priest uh, is supposed to wear. And there are also the dietary laws, rules about food and its preparation. Those dietary laws are part of the ceremonial law, which might seem a little surprising to us, but look at it this way. Notice that an iguana is not kosher, but eating an iguana does not violate either a civil law or a moral law. Regarding the civil law, no government, including the government of the ancient kingdom of Israel, cared whether or not you ate a lizard. From the point of view of civil society, what you put into your mouth is not terribly interesting. It's also not a moral issue. There's nothing immoral about eating an iguana or any other animal. Humans, by the way, were vegetarian from the time of the Garden of Eden until after the flood... But after the flood, all animals were given to us by God as food. We read in Genesis 9, 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. So eating an iguana is not a civil matter, and it's not a moral matter, but it is a ceremonial matter. Because the person who eats a lizard is ceremonially unclean and cannot enter into worship until he's been ritually purified. Now this idea of ritual purity is strange to us as Christians. Because when we talk about being ritually clean, we're not talking about being physically clean. You can scrub an iguana and it's still unclean. The idea of being ritually clean is very strange to us. Probably the closest thing we have to the notion of ritual cleanness is the idea of being dressed for church. Now we've become very informal in the past 50 years. These days billionaires wear t-shirts and hoodies. But there was a time when people wouldn't go to church unless they were wearing their Sunday best. I remember my grandmother, who was not a fancy lady, but she would never go into a church without a hat on her head. To her, it just didn't seem right to be in church without a hat. It isn't a sin for a Jew to eat an iguana. But if he does eat an iguana, he would have to undergo a ritual purification so that he could go into worship. So Jews simply avoid all unclean food because they want to be ready for worship at any time. It's kind of like they're wearing their Sunday best all of the time just in case they have a chance to worship God, which I think is really nice. The Reformers concluded that the Old Testament ceremonial law, that it's rich in symbolism that points to Jesus, but that it does not apply to us as Christians. So there are three parts of the Old Testament law. The moral law, which is universal and continues to apply to us today. The civil law, which is subordinate to the moral law and has been replaced by the civil law in each individual country. And then finally, the ceremonial law, which applied to the people of Israel and pointed forward to Christ, but which is no longer now in force for us. 
So let's go back to Peter's vision and dig a little bit deeper. Peter receives a vision from God of a sheet, a very large sheet, full of every kind of animal, and a voice commanding him, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. Peter declines. He points to the Old Testament law about clean and unclean food, and then God repeats the vision three times. And in verse 17 we read, Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Now, it's easy for us long after the fact to think that Peter's being thick-headed here. Three times, God offers Peter bacon-wrapped shrimp, and Peter scratches his head and says, what could this possibly mean? Sometimes, Peter's vision is pointed to as the proof text that the kosher laws no longer apply to Christians and that we as Christians can eat anything. But as it turns out, that's not exactly true either. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to flip over to Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, uh, we have a very interesting scene. The, the chapter begins with... Um, the Pharisees giving Jesus and his disciples a hard time because they are eating lunch, but they haven't first washed their hands. Okay? So Jesus and his disciples, they've been in the marketplace, uh, and then they leave the marketplace and they're, you know, they're in someone's house and they're eating, but they forgot to wash their, well, I don't know if they forgot, but they didn't wash their hands before they started eating. Now, keep in mind, these ancient people do not have a germ theory of disease. They don't know anything about bacteria or viruses. The whole thing about being clean or unclean has nothing to do with disease, but rather ceremonial purity. To remain ceremonially pure, a Jew is supposed to wash his hands after having been in a public place before he eats. Okay, so this is part of the ceremonial law, part of the rules around food. Jesus and his disciples ignore these laws. They are eating lunch with unwashed hands, and Jesus is just fine with that. Now let me read a few verses for you. This is beginning at verse 14. And he called the people, and Jesus called the people to him and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. His disciples asked him about this parable and he said, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, foolishness, and pride. All these things come from within and they defile a person. That's the end of that passage. Now notice two things about that passage. Number one, the little parenthetical statement in verse 19. Thus He, Jesus, declared all foods clean. This is long before Peter's vision of the sheep full of animals. Jesus has already declared 
all foods clean during his earthly ministry. Not only all foods, by the way, but all hands, including unwashed hands, are allowed now to eat lunch and still be clean. The abolition of the kosher law, the ceremonial law surrounding food and eating, was done by Jesus during his earthly ministry. Peter's vision is a reminder to him the most thick-headed of the disciples. It's a reminder to him of what Jesus already taught before his crucifixion. Second thing, Jesus makes it clear that shame and uncleanness and defilement are the result of something we do, not of something that has been done to us. This is an important point. Because some people feel shame for things that have happened to them. Some people feel unclean or defiled because of things they did not do. Now, shame is a very deep emotion. It's almost biological. And people can feel shame for a lot of reasons. We can feel ashamed for being poor. We can feel ashamed for how we look. We can feel ashamed for things that people have done to us. When we feel shame, we feel dirty, we feel defiled. What, and that shame has the ability to sting us like a sharp slap in the face. Jesus doesn't say that we should never feel shame. There are times when shame is appropriate. When shame is actually healthy, a, a shameless person is a dangerous, a pathological person. What Jesus teaches in this little episode of the unwashed hands is that it is not things that happen to us, but things that come out of us that we should feel shame for. Jesus' whole ministry is driving from the surface to the heart. So many of us are worried about appearances and superficial things. Do I have a hat on? Am I wearing the right tie? Did I wash my hands? But Jesus keeps exposing the heart. Whitewashed tombs is what Jesus called the Pharisees who were so concerned about these external matters, about appearances. Whitewashed tombs look great on the outside, but inside they're full of decay and death. What's on the outside is not what matters. The dirt on our hands, the things that have happened to us, those things don't matter. Those things are not shameful or defiling. What we need to be careful about is what is inside of us. And Jesus lists all kinds of ugly things. Things that truly defile. Things that come from inside. Things like slander and envy and pride. Those are the things that we need to watch out for. So you know this whole story about Peter and the sheet full of animals is not really about food. I mean, it's sort of about food, but not really. Something bigger is going on here. The story of Peter and the sheet full of animals sits in the middle of this larger story, the largest story actually in the Acts of the Apostles, the story of Cornelius, the uncircumcised, the unclean Gentile coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The story of Peter and the animals is stuck in the middle of that larger story. And it's there for a strategic reason. Because for the gospel to spread, the apostles had to get rid of certain 
deeply ingrained prejudices about stuff that didn't really matter. Peter is a Jew, of course. And for Jews, things like clean hands and clean food and clean people uh, are really important. Peter grew up with things being done in a certain way when it comes to food. And frankly, if things weren't done that way, they probably just seemed gross to Peter. But Jesus teaches that those rules about food and about cleanness are not essential to what God wants. And so Peter has to unlearn the old habits and the ingrained prejudices. He had been a disciple of Jesus for three years, but somehow he didn't learn the lesson that all food and all hands are clean. He didn't learn the lesson that what's inside is what counts. And he has to learn this lesson clearly if he's going to be able to share the gospel with this unclean Roman soldier, Cornelius. And so God sends this vision of a sheet full of unclean animals to remind Peter of what Jesus had already taught so that Peter would be prepared to share the gospel. We as a church are the descendants of Peter. Our job is the same as Peter's. Our job is to share the good news of the gospel with all people, including people that we might think are unclean. And if we're going to be effective in sharing the gospel, we have to examine ourselves to see if there are prejudices that get in the way of sharing the gospel. Are there things that we think just to be a certain way, but the Bible doesn't even say anything about that. Do we let what we are accustomed to get in the way of us sharing the life-changing news with other people? Are there things that gross us out, that keep us from being ambassadors for Jesus? This morning we are going to gather around the Lord's table, and in doing so we will uh, reenact the Last Supper, we will remember uh, the sacrifice that Jesus made for us to take away our sins, to make us clean. Jesus' death is what makes us clean and acceptable. And the Bible teaches us that in the kingdom of God, that there are going to be people from every tribe and every tongue sharing commonly in one endless feast. This morning's communion service is a foretaste of the life that we will enjoy in the kingdom of God. So I want to invite you to this table this morning, knowing that you have been made clean and acceptable, not by your own efforts or following of the law, but by God's love for you and by the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and by the faith that the Holy Spirit put into your heart. Let us come to this table today in trust and in faith. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for brother Peter. Thank you for being patient with him and showing him this uh, grand vision of this sheet coming down out of heaven. Lord, I pray that we would understand that what you have made clean is clean. I pray that this day that we would see ourselves as people who've been washed in the blood of the lamb. I pray that we would... Uh, 
feel free in that and that we would welcome others uh, into the fellowship and into the communion. Lord, as we come to uh, your table this morning, I pray that we would come there in great joy, uh, knowing that this is a foretaste of an even grander feast that we will share in days to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.